Well, you guys are real close. Yeah, no, real close. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't drink my water. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad to be up here. Um, this has been something that um, uh, God has put on my heart a long time ago, and uh, even before that, he put it on our senior pastor's heart uh, to do this. And um, so I, I want to specifically, I want to uh, thank First Baptist. I know there's probably not a lot of people here. I don't think I saw Pastor Bill uh, Angland, but uh, I know I saw one of the trustees, Walt, here and. And uh, this is very exciting. It's exciting to partner with them in ministry in this sanctuary. Beautiful, beautiful building. And, and just so thankful to be able to worship here. And a lot of history here. Uh, this church started here in 1840 before this was even a state. Uh, and this sanctuary was built in 1875. And so, anyways, very grateful to be here. Um, thank you for my mentor and pastor, Steve, and uh, Cor, and Tim, and Drew, and John. They're all here. And all, a couple of elders are here as well. Uh, but I'd be amiss if I didn't thank my wife. I got, I'm not going to talk about it because I'll cry. So thank you, Angela. I love you. I'm not going to look at you. <clears throat> um, but we're glad we're here. And so this, this is a, a monumental night. This isn't just monumental for, for me, even though it's been on my heart for a long time, and, uh, or for uh, Steve, uh, but, or even just for Hope Community Church. But this is a win. This is a win for uh, the, the Bride of Christ. This is a win for the Church of Christ. And so... Um, if I actually had Pastor Drew, he, had, he wanted to take a picture from behind me. So, and I was like, well, it might be kind of awkward, but uh, why don't we just put you up there and we'll just do it. So, um, uh, so I don't know if we need lights or anything, but uh, so this is, this is history, right? So smile. And uh, yeah, so. Great. Thanks, boss. <laughs> All right, will you, um, will you just bow your heads with me and let's just open in prayer and let's just consecrate uh, this, right? Let's consecrate this church, uh, Christ's bride. Heavenly Father, God, I again thank you for the opportunity and the joy uh, and the privilege uh, to be a minister of your gospel, uh, that we get to uh, come into a part of town, uh, a new city, at least for us, and partner with a, a church that is so kingdom-minded uh, to allow us to use this space and uh, that we get to lift up your name, uh, that we get to champ champion the name of Christ and his gospel and so that people and lives will be changed because we believe that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And uh, if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be here. And so, God, I pray that uh, you would receive the honor, that you'd receive the glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, so as... Uh, as Tim was saying, we're starting a new series, which again is kind of weird because we're, this is a first service, right? So uh, we're going to be starting this new series, but as we look at uh, just kind of, I want to talk a little bit, just vision and value of this church. If you're visiting, if you're just checking out Hope, uh, we have phrases about this is a safe place to ask questions, right? We, we really believe that, uh, that we, we use the phrase that if you're just kicking the tires of Christianity, you're just checking it out, we want you to be able to ask those questions, and, and it's a safe place to do that. Um, and, and every day when I walk into the church building downtown Minneapolis, our, our senior pastor, Steve, um, he had paint, painted on the wall Isaiah 55.1. I just want to read this verse, and it says this, and I hope this is an encouragement maybe to some of you who are just checking out Christianity. He says, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That we want to take and tear down those walls of hostility. And as we start this series, and as we look at the Reformation, look at what Martin Luther did in that time period, that we want to be able to say this is a safe place. 
Uh, this is a time, this is a place where you can tear down the walls of hostility. Maybe you have some preconceived notions of what church is, what it was, how you grew up. And then you can come in here and look at the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's our heart and that's our goal, and especially as we look at this Reformation. Um, this is exciting to teach on this. I, I know this may sound weird, but I've been preparing for this sermon my whole life, okay? Uh, I, I love studying the Reformation. I love studying about the Reformers. I don't even want to know how many hours and pages I've written about the man that we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at tonight, Martin Luther. Um, and so if I just start rambling and telling some crazy stories, forgive me, I'm just really excited about Martin Luther. Uh, it's just, anyways, I'm a geek, and that's okay. All right, so tonight is going to be a little different, so I need to, I need to explain that. Um, and so if you're visiting the first time, you're like, man, we didn't really get to walk through a passage. Um, no, and, and today is really going to be a really long introduction. Not really long. I'm not going to, you know, don't worry. But, but it's going to be a long introduction. It's going to set the, the, the pattern. It's going to set the stage uh, for the rest of the series. It's going to carry us through the rest of the year, uh, really until we get to Christmas, as we walk through uh, the Reformation, the theology that came out of that. And so we are, I'm excited about that. Um, so it's a history lesson for a lot of it. Uh, but I was a history minor, and uh, I love history. So if I see you nodding off, I apologize. It may not be your thing, but it's, it's really my thing, okay? So uh, just, we'll, we'll get started. So tonight's message, tonight's message, we're looking at the 95 Thesis. All right, that's what Martin Luther nailed uh, to a Catholic church's door in Wittenberg. Uh, and even at that time, before, some would say, maybe even before he was actually a believer, before he was even a Christian. But we're going to look at what he says uh, and, and how this came about and what started all of this. And so, again, we've got to go back. Um, and I called it ancient history, and I don't think that terminology is right. It's actually just early church history, whatever that would be, like, like 0 AD. I don't think it's ancient history. I didn't Google that, but that's what I put up there. So the early church, and I want to look at kind of how the church started, right? How, what, what exactly came about? So um, I've got the scripture. It's going to be up on the screen. Also, it's going to be in that insert that you had with the outline so you can follow around uh, along and, and then uh, gauge and see how long exactly I'm going to be uh, going still, right? Uh, so Acts 1, 6 through 8 says this. So this is, uh, sorry, uh, context here. This is right after uh, Jesus had, had been crucified. He had been buried. He had risen from the dead. And now he's, he's, he's with his disciples, and he's talking to his disciples. And so it says, then they, that's the disciples, gathered around him, that's Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. See what he does there? He, they ask him, Jesus, are, are you now going to do this? He says, no, I, I'm not going to do this, right? I'm leaving. I'm out of here. But the Holy Spirit's going to come. You're going to receive power. And you, you are going to do this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. That's an imperative. In both Jerusalem, or excuse me, Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happens. That when we see this, the very next chapter, it's what people call the Pentecost. And, and the Apostle Peter preaches, and that day, 3,000 people get added to the church, and then the gospel just spreads all over the church. And the, 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 the church just grows like wildfire in that area, and it spreads and it spreads until you get to the end of Acts, Acts chapter 28, and Paul is finally in Rome. And the gospel, and the apostle Paul get to Rome, and he's preaching the gospel there, and it says this, the very last two verses of, of, of the book of Acts says, for two whole years, Paul would stay there in his own rented house, 
and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And, it, and that's it, right? The gospel gets to Rome, storybook closes, right? And then and that's in the rest of history. And here we are today, right? Fast forward a long ways. And we are actually part of an organization, a church planting organization that's called Acts 29. This church, even though it's day one, we're part of Acts 29, right? It's that continuation of the spread of the gospel. That's why it's called Acts 29, because it doesn't just stay in Rome. It spreads and it grows. And so I want to look at the start of the Catholic Church, and I need to give a, a caveat here, right? Some of you may have grown up Catholic. Some of you have family who's Catholic. Uh, and I want to be very careful and clear and make sure that you understand that, w that when I'm talking about the Catholic Church tonight specifically and really the rest of the series, I'm talking about the Catholic Church during the time of the Reformation, right? There were some major problems, some major uh, fraudulent things that were happening in the Catholic Church and, and, and it's, it's impossible to mask the language and, the, and really the hatred that the reformers have towards the Catholic Church. I'm not talking about today's Catholic Church, okay? Obviously, I'm not Catholic, or I wouldn't be standing in a Baptist church preaching a very Baptist message, right? But uh, we're, we're parking at the Catholic Church, okay? There's no animosity here the way that there was, right? Um, and I hope you don't get towed. That's, uh, I, I... <laughs> Sorry if that happens. It won't. It won't, Jesus, right? It won't. It won't happen. Okay, uh, so the start of the Catholic Church, when this, when this happened, okay, in the Catholic Church as it, as it grew, and I'm going to kind of go back and forth in the timelines, just be, be patient with me here a little bit, but as it started, right, in the early 200s and 300 ADs, all of these little churches were sprouting up all over the place. And the Catholic Church started as a very, very good thing. It cared about the gospel going forth, and they wanted to organize it. How do we get these churches organized, and how do we, how, who, who teaches the theology, and how do we develop schools and, and, the, and seminaries and, and, and monasteries and those kinds of things? And it started out as a good thing. And so Susan uh, Carrant Nunn says this, the church, the early church, the Catholic church, was a major player in international politics and in the international affairs of regions. And it fostered a sense of identity at the level of a local communities and gave individuals a sense of location and purpose within the greater scheme of things. There wasn't necessarily countries a lot at this time. There was a few of them, but a lot of city-states. And, and so what controlled that area politically even at the time was the Catholic Church. And it was a good thing. But then things happen. And so I want to just fast forward and look at what was the spiritual and political climate of the 1500s. And then I'm going to kind of go back and say, how did it get to that? Okay, so I know it's kind of weird going to Quentin Tarantino it on you, but we're, that's what we're going to do. So uh, spiritual, political climate of the 1500s says this, the phenomenon of folk religion, okay, that's, that's kind of what the, the church turned into because it was a political powerhouse. And so the church, the Holy Roman Empire, which had actual state power, came in and they would take over an area that was pagan, that was not Christian, and they would say, man, but we worship our God, you know, the, 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 the God of, of the forest. And they would say, oh, it's okay. We, we actually have a patron saint for that. And you, and you can pray to that patron saint of the forest. And, and so this kind of this folk religion happened. You didn't really have to abandon your own religion. You could just kind of take place in the Catholic faith at that time. And it says the phenomenon of folk religion often bore a, a tangential relationship to the more precise yet abstract statements of Christian doctrine that the church preferred. It was just kind of a combination, but that many found unintelligible or unattractive. In parts of Europe, something close to fertility cults emerge, connecting to the enmeshed, enmeshed with the patterns of concerns of everyday life. 
The agrarian activities of rural communities, such as haymaking and harvesting, were firmly associated with popular religion. Thus, in the French diocese of Mont, uh, in the, it's probably, that's probably actually accurate, uh, in the early 16th century, the saints were uh, regularly invoked, right? The saints were regularly invoked in order to ward off animal and infant disease, the plague, eye trouble, as well as to ensure young women found appropriate husbands. Uh, I, I know there's even a patron saint for uh, hangovers, which is kind of an oxymoron to me, but that's, you know, whatever. Um, and so, um, so that's kind of what's going on here. You've got, you've got these people. And so again, Alistair McGrath, he says this, the, direction connect, the direct connection between religion and everyday life was taken for granted, and the spiritual and material were interconnected at every level. And that's this idea of these, this folksy kind of weird connection between religion and what people believed. So now we look at this, and the church is the state. The church is the state. And, and when we look at Martin Luther specifically and a, a lot of other reformers, I, I don't agree with everything that they said and everything they did, even their theology. Or we're we're going to have communion tonight, and I'm going to 100% disagree with Martin Luther's view on communion and how that should be done. And I'll explain that a little bit more. But the church is the state. It has power. And so if you didn't go to church on Sunday, you'd get fined, right? It was, that, was how they, that was how they kept their power and their control. And so as we look at this, this starts all the way back. Okay, so we're going back to Constantine. And this guy, right, he was the emperor of Rome. Uh, and he makes it, this is the start, the birth of the Holy Roman Empire. And, uh, and the story's told that he's out fighting and he sees a cross in the air. And underneath it uh, is the phrase, uh, by this sign, conquer. And so that's when you get just the rise of the Holy Roman Empire, and he ends up with the sword going forth and killing masses uh, in order to spread the good news of Jesus, which, again, oxymoron. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but uh, we'll get there. And so uh, recently I was, I was actually in Rome, uh, and there's a huge uh, arch that's in Rome that, that, that is dedicated to Constantinople, uh, or Constantine, excuse me, and... and it, <laughs> very different, Constantine, and then it has all this Christian art on it, because this was a new thing. To be a Christian in, the early, in, in, in Rome in the early days, uh, you were getting killed. You were getting eaten by animals in the Colosseum, and all of a sudden, your, your emperor comes up there and says, nope, we're going to go forth as a Christian nation. It's now free to do that. Matter of fact, if you're not a Christian, now you're in trouble. And so that's what's going on. And so that's how they, they controlled uh, the people. And then this was a phrase that was common during that time, is whoever controls the region controls the religion. And uh, so that's, that's what was going on. And so they would take a census. How would they take a census? Well, this is kind of how, at least within the Catholic Church, the start of infant baptism comes about, uh, that they would inf baptize infants to keep a track record of all the new babies that were being born. If I know about how many kids are in a family, well, then I know how much to tax them, right? And so that was kind of their way of, again, just control, using religion to control as a state. Uh, and that's what was happening. But during this time, and, and as we get closer to the Reformation, there were a few reformers. There's there people who, who got it. There were people who said, man, Scripture should be my highest authority, not the church. I should not have to obey what somebody says about the Bible. I should just obey the Bible. Um, and so one example is a guy, John Huss, who ends up getting burned at the stake. And uh, this is a phrase right before he dies. Uh, this is a phrase he says, he says, God is my, is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I've never thought nor preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. And the truth of the gospel I have written, taught, and preached, and today I will gladly die. And he's burned alive at the stake. 
And during this time, these people, and there's a couple other ones that, that spark up and they, and they flare up for a little while and they, and they get squelched by the Catholic Church. And it was at this perfect time. And there's a lot of different reasons which we'll explain as we go along that this, that this man, God's volcano, right? It's not just a spark anymore. It's not just a little flickering flame. It is a volcano that just erupts in Europe and he changes the world, changes it. We wouldn't be here in this room if it wasn't for this man. And so uh, we owe a lot to him. Uh, and so, again, I, I'm going to try really hard to not talk and tell crazy stories about him, but he's just awesome. So uh, he was born with the name Martin Luther, uh, which was then Latinized later on by him to Luther, as we all know him. And uh, he was born November 10th, 1483. So John Huss is killed at the stake just 70 years before he's born. So this is same time period. And so uh, not to go into too many details, but his, his father uh, was, uh, was a copper miner. He was a peasant, and he owned a mining business and kind of rose up in the ranks and was able to provide for his kids in ways that other peasants were. They were kind of a, like a, a, a win, a story that everyone liked to talk about their family because of the wealth they, they got just out of hard work. And, and so Luther, though, was a really good student. He was incredibly intelligent. He went to school wanted to pursue law school. He went to uh, the, one of the, all the best schools in the area. And when he was 19, he went to the university and got his bachelor's degree in one year. So that's saying something. Uh, and I'm pretty sure in order to get my bachelor's year in five years, uh, I didn't have to learn Latin, or I guess I had to learn Greek. But that's a little different. Uh, but he already knew Greek, so it doesn't matter, right? So it, the dude was a genius. And he's graduating constantly at the top of his class or like second or third, but then it was like, you look at, it's one of those like little asterisks, like there's only 18 people in the class though, and it's like, oh, okay, well, is he actually that intelligent? Um, but, so he does that, and he's, he's incredibly intelligent, and he goes to pursue law, and then this gathering storm happens on July 17th, 1505. Luther is traveling back to his school, and in the middle of uh, this, this uh, uh, prairie or a, a field, He's, he's walking, and sure enough, a, a lightning storm comes, and lightning striking right next to him, and he, and he cries out from his knees, again, pagan. He cries out and says, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk, right? That's his prayer, right? And I want to encourage you in that, right? If you're just, again, kicking the tires of Christianity, you don't really know, how do I exactly pray? Listen, God heard that cry. God heard him. But the thing is, Martin Luther was a man of his word. I was looking for pictures of this paintings or something. I couldn't really find any that I, in my mind really reenacted the scene of this horrific storm enough to make someone say, I'm going to not be a lawyer. I'm going to be a monk, right? I'm going I'm to dedicate myself to studying God's word and quietness. Uh, and so this was the best one I could find. It was a Lego reenactment of the, of the so Luther's on his face, lightning bolt. Um, I like Luther, but I, I don't got time for that, right? I don't know who does, but somebody did. And so so he ends up carrying through with that. He becomes, uh, he becomes a nun, or nun. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> it's false. You're paying attention, which is good. Uh, he does not become a nun. Uh, he becomes a monk in the Augustinian Priory, which is, which is one of the most strict uh, monasteries that the Catholic Church had at the time. And the story is told that Martin Luther, uh, again, this is completely against uh, what his father wanted. His father was furious with him, right? He's ready to become a lawyer and move their family up in the ranks. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to become a monk and I'm going to live in a monastery with a bunch of other dudes and we're going to be quiet and not talk to each other. I'm going to pray all day. 
And his dad was like, what? No, 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 no. But he does it anyways because he made a promise, right? He said, I'm going to do this if you save me. And so he goes here, and the story's told that as he's performing his first mass, he is overcome, and we're going to look at why, but he's overcome with the fear of God, that he views God as so holy and transcendent and separate, and that as he lifts up the, the bread above his head, and he says, hoc as corpus diem, I'm probably butchering that, but it's, this is my body, right? He can't, and he starts stuttering and stammering, and his dad is probably right here, right? And, and, and his dad is losing his mind. I, I can't believe that you, you gave up being a lawyer to do this, and you can't even get through it. And so Luther, overcome with the fear of God, he can't even say the words because this is so sacred. At that time, the Catholic Church, they didn't pass out the elements, right? If you're a follower of Christ, you get to enjoy these elements. I don't have to bless them. There's nothing special about them. I don't have to hand them to you because we believe in something called the priesthood of the believer, which we're going to look at later on as well. That's what Luther taught, but at that time, he didn't. And he's holding this up. He's overcome with fear, and he, and he runs, runs out, and he is terrified, terrified of God. And he spends hours, and I'm, hours in confession. And by hours, I mean like six hours he would spend in confession. And he would, he would actually end up skipping chapel because he was in confession for so long, and then he'd have to add more to his confession because he skipped church. Right? That was the kind of guy he was. He was so serious about his faith, but he couldn't ever, ever figure out this whole thing of God's wrath and what he called the righteousness of God and what that meant. And so while he's at this Augustine and Priory, one of his, his priests that he was always in the confessional booth with just was getting frustrated, right? And he was just like, Luther, yo, you got to cut this out. How about you focus on Scripture? And he says, how about you study? How about you become a teacher, a professor, start teaching this stuff? And, and I think that helped. And so in his studies of uh, Psalms and Romans, which you're going to look at later. Uh, this is something that he said. This is what Martin Luther said while he is a professor. He says, It is not against the natural reason that God, out of his mere whim, deserts men, hardens them, damns them, as if he delighted in sins, and in such torments of the wretched for eternity, he who is said to have be of such mercy and goodness, this appears iniquitous, cruel, and intolerable in God, by which the very, by very many, have been offended in all ages, and who would not be? I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair, so that I wished that I had never been created. Love God? I hated him. All right? That's his view of God, because if you have that view of God, yes, yes, hate that God, because that's not the God of the Bible. And so as Luther is studying, he starts wrestling with this idea of the righteousness of God. And if you've been around church at all and you hear the righteousness of God, this isn't a problem. We know this as just the gospel, that God loved us freely. If you sang or at least just read the words, the lyrics to those songs, just gospel truth that I cannot save myself. It's not, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, right? It is all about Jesus. But they didn't, he didn't get that. And so this is a, kind of a rediscovery of the gospel. This is what he wrote about his viewpoint about the gospel. And again, this is uh, again, just do a little bit of a foreshadow here of what's going on. He said, such terror of God Luther encountered, this is from Oswald Baer, such terror of God Luther encountered every time he entered the city church in Wittenberg. On a stone relief above the entrance of the cemetery surrounding the church, Luther saw carved into the mandorla, a neural shaped like an almond. Don't know what that means. Something on this, this thing, sculpture. Christ seated on a rainbow as the judge of the world, 
so angry that the veins stand out, menacing and swollen on his forehead. So every day when Luther walks by, that's literally the image of this loving God that he has, that he's so, so mad and angry with sin that his veins are popping out on his head ready to judge the world. And that's how Luther saw Jesus viewing himself. So his former view of this idea of righteousness of God, this is what Luther said. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. Even though he was in confession all the time and he was praying all the time and he was doing penance all the time, he was completely, extremely disturbed in his conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, the scriptures, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Maybe some of you are there. Maybe some of you are looking at God and saying, I hate that God. I hear about the wrath. I'm, I'm, I'm done hearing about the wrath. Where's the good news? Well, Luther, again, just furthering this point, is trained in something called the modern way. In other words, it, it's translated best that God will not deny grace to those who do their best. In other words, it is by my own merit. It's something that I can do to make God happy with me, and he couldn't get there. And so we look at this rediscovery of justification of faith, the rediscovery of the gospel in Martin Luther's life. And he goes to Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. There's that phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Luther studies this and has this aha moment. And I, lo I love how this is written by Luther. He says this, just taking a journal of, of Romans chapter 1. He says this, you mean, here, Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have righteousness of their own. Whoa, right? <laughs> Whoa, you mean that this righteousness by which I am saved is not mine? Yes, preach it, Luther, right? He's just getting this. And then he goes on, he says this, and this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness. Right? It's got nothing to do with me. It's passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through the open gates. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Because the God who he only saw as just 
And his wrath being poured out, now as he studies Romans, he realizes that God can now be the just and the justifier. And when you see God through that lens, it's beautiful. He goes on to say this, and to look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger or ungraciousness, he who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only at a curtain as if the dark cloud had been drawn across his face. That's where Luther really becomes a Christian after studying this. Long story, and I don't have the time, but he ends up making this journey to Rome, and he sees some of the uh, atrocities that are happening there with the local leaders and the, and the church that's happening there and the money that they have and they're spending, and they have this thing of the, what the Pope called a merit of grace, and they could that anyone who, who prayed or held a mass on behalf of a loved one that was in purgatory, uh, then they could be set free from purgatory. And, and Luther began to struggle with this, and he said, if, if the Pope has all that grace, why doesn't he just give it to everybody? Why doesn't he just pour it out on everybody? Why do they have to do these things? And so he has this, this, this idea of purgatory is developed further within the Catholic Church this time. And, and so if you were really, really bad, you'd go straight to hell. But then there was a place called purgatory that everyone, even if you believed in Jesus and, and the gospel and all these things, you, you would go to this place called purgatory. And only the really, really good people, the saints, would make it straight to heaven. Everybody else had to pay their way off in purgatory. So loved ones, family members, friends who died, they would be in this place called purgatory, but then something changed. And instead of just prayer and mass on behalf of the dead, they switched and they started doing these things called indulgences. And they started selling forgiveness and merit. And so this, is, uh, this was from the museum. Uh, I got to go with my wife uh, when that was here. Uh, I was like a, like a kid in a candy shop. <laughs> I was just geeking out the whole time, crying one moment, laughing the next moment. Uh, saw his pulpit and was just a puddle, like I just, oh man, I love this guy. And, and they start selling, they had nothing to do with anything, I apologize. He, he's, they start selling these indulgences, right? And, and this is actually one that, that was there. And so you see this, this thing, this piece of paper, the church would write and say, okay, you paid enough money, your, your friend, your loved one, your sister has been set free from purgatory and all this money is going back to Rome and it's building this huge uh, basilica, as we know, St. Peter's Basilica. It's being remodeled down there. That's what's happening with these indulgences. And so there's a guy, Johann Tetzel, who ends up selling these. And he goes to Luther's hometown, in, or the town where he's uh, teaching in, in Wittenberg, and he says this. All right, this is, this is uh, Tetzel's uh, uh, statement here. He says, Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching to you and saying, Pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us uh, for our pit, uh, pittance. Do you not wish to open your ears? Hear the father saying to his son, the, mother, the mother to her daughter, we bore you, we nourished you, we brought you up, left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel and hard that now you are not willing for so little to set us free. Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you are able to release them and there's this little, you know, greasy salesman phrase that he has here. And he says, for as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And you will not then for a quarter of a florin receive these letters of indulgence through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul into the fatherland of paradise. That is the church 
oppressing people with their power and their position and their religious authority, saying, if you do this, if you give us a little bit of money, they'll be set free. Luther's got a problem with this, a big problem. And so on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, almost 500 years ago, that's why we're doing this, in case you didn't know, Luther then nails the 95 theses on a door. And that's, that wouldn't, it wasn't a weird thing. That'd be like a bulletin board or whatever. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't odd or anything that he did this. But he, he nails the 95 theses on this door. Um, and, and, and at this point, Luther didn't want a schism. He didn't want the Catholic Church to just dissolve. He wasn't telling the Pope to quit his job and let's just end all this. Let's just start over afresh. He knew that there was no way that that would help. And he wanted to just reform it. He wanted to just fix the problems from within. And so that's what he does. And when he nails this to the door, he's basically just challenging other scholars to a debate. And he talks about indulgences. He talks about a life of a believer is all of repentance, not just, not just I, I buy my repentance. I go to Jesus and his grace for that repentance. And so this is possible because you go back into the early uh, uh, or 1480s, I believe, and the Gutenberg press is invented. And so now they're able, for the first time, able to actually uh, quickly, quickly, quickly manufacture letters and books. And so as Luther writes it, these things are flying off the presses all over the place. And so his 95 theses get spread all over the place, and the Catholic Church takes interest, right? But Luther, he's writing letters to the popes. He's doing all these things. He's I want to reform this. Let's, let's go. Here's, this is what the gospel is. Let's, let's fix this. And so on June 15, 1520, Pope Leo X sends this thing called the Papal Bull, and excommunicates Martin Luther out of the Catholic Church, right? So now at this point, he's like, well, I guess there's no fixing it from within. And he gets this crazy, radical idea that maybe we should start something new, that maybe there is no hope here now at this point for the church. Maybe God is doing something else. And so he keeps writing and keeps uh, producing books, and he writes, uh, he, gets, he gets called to this thing at the Diet of Worms in 1521. Uh, the, the emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor is there, as well as Pope Leo X, and they're there, and they're questioning him. And they get all of his books, they spread them out on a table right in front of Luther. And he's standing there, and they say, do you recant what these books say? And he says, let me think about it, <laughs> okay? Why, why? Because everybody else who's been in this position has died. And so he now has a, has, a, has a chance. Maybe now is the time. And he says, let me think about it. And he goes back to his room and he prays. And there's some crazy journals and stories that he does at this time. And I won't take time to read any of that stuff. But the next day, he gets back up in front of the council there. And he says this. And I'm just going to read this. He says, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. For they have contradicted each other, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against my conscience is neither right or safe. Here I stand. I can do no, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Now Luther thinks, I'm a dead man. But he, he sticks firm to his conscience, he says, I know what the gospel is, and we've missed something here. We can fix this. I can't recant. I can't go back on what I said. I believe this. Well, fortunately for him, very shortly, actually that, that week, I think, as he's there, May, 20, May, May 15 of 2000, or, sorry, May, 
May, not, May 1521 through February 1522, this guy, Frederick the Wise, he's a prince in Germany, decides to send a group of his soldiers to go into Wittenberg and to kidnap Martin Luther. And they kidnap him. And they take him back to his castle. And he says, you're safe here. You're safe. Here's a room. Do your thing. Go study. Do what you want to do. You're cool here, right? You can print all you want. We'll do whatever you want to do. Uh, and this guy is, is incredibly instrumental uh, in helping Martin Luther escape. And during this time, here's a picture of the castle that he would have been at. During this time, some incredibly amazing things happened that changed the world as we know it. Martin Luther translates the scripture uh, into German. Had never been done before. This is the 1500s. It had never been translated into German. And at this point, it still hasn't been translated into English. It was always in Latin. And it would sit in the church in chains. And the only people who could read it were people who could read Latin. And so Luther says, I'm going to translate this Bible into German so everybody can read it. And you know what? I'm going to do something even more radical. I'm going to start speaking in a language that everybody can understand, not just me. What? Right? And that's what he starts doing. He starts preaching the gospel in the language they can understand. This is the, the, the infamous story, if you're familiar with Luther the way I am, I don't know, uh, where he's sitting there and he's translating scripture and the, and the devil comes, right? As Luther tells, the devil shows up in his room, right? And you can imagine, right, whatever your view is on, on spiritual warfare, right, you got a guy who's going to change the world as we know it. I'm not that surprised that the devil shows up and is like, don't you do that, Right? And then what's he do? He, he takes his inkwell and he throws it at, at him. And so apparently if you tour this castle, you can still see the ink blot, but they, they touch it up. You know how that goes. <laughs> he ends up uh, telling clergy that they can now get married. And so people are getting married. And, and so priests are leaving the Catholic Church and, and becoming part of this new religion, this new church called Lutheranism, which Luther hated the fact that it was named after him, but that's what it was, and it's going forward, and, and he's teaching, and he's training people, and he actually ends up, he ends up breaking out 12 uh, nuns, nuns actually this time, uh, from a nunnery, uh, and, and he, he smuggles them in barrels. He puts them in wine barrels, and he smuggles them out of, the, of this nunnery because they wanted to get out of there to, to be Protestant. They wanted to be uh, reformers, that they wanted to be part of this new thing. And he ends up telling them, hey, if, I, if you get out, I'll actually get you married, okay? So all these nuns escape. He marries them all off. Well, there's one left, Katerita von Bismarck, right? And he ends up saying, I, I'm sorry, I, I told you that if I got you out, I'd find you a husband. I guess I'm obligated to marry you, okay? So, so he ends up marrying her out of obligation, but then they end up having just an awesome marriage. Uh, and I wish I had, I don't have time, I really don't, to talk more about that. Uh, but they end up having a great, great marriage. Um, there was one, one, one story, real quick, real quick, uh, uh, where, where he, he is, um, he's depressed. He really struggled with depression, especially later on in life, but he's really depressed one day. And uh, his wife, Katie, comes down the stairs and she's wearing all black and has a, a, you know, a black uh, veil over her face as if she's going to a funeral. And Luther looks at her and he says, who died? And then he said, well, I assume that if the great Martin Luther is this depressed, then clearly God must have died, right? So <laughs> a great response, right? And he's like, okay, ha ha, right? Uh, just, I, they're, they're a fun couple to read about, uh, especially at that time. He, he praises uh, men who do the dishes and wash and do diapers, right? And he's like, just know that the world around you, they might be looking at you and looking at you as, a, as, as effeminate and all these different things. And he says, listen, I want you to know that God, that God and the angels are smiling at you. <laughs> yes, he, he is. He, God likes you caring for your family, just so you know. Um, okay, what are we talking about here? 
aftermath of God's volcano. Okay, we're just gonna we're gonna quickly wrap this up. But the aftermath, what happens? Right? What what happens because of what Luther did? Obviously, because of the scripture, he translated the scripture into the modern tongue, and this just keeps going. This is huge. And so uh, Vishal uh, Magalwali, uh, he writes this book called the, the Book That Made Your World, and he says this about Luther. Luther became a reformer because when he realized that in order to conform to God's word, all God's children would need to have that word in their native language, right? This, this radical idea back then. And he translates the Bible into their own German dialect. There's at this church, the Korean meet here, and there's Bibles probably in your pews in the Korean dialect. Why? Because it's really important to read the scripture in your own language. And he translated the Bible in his own German dialect. His translation went on into hundreds of editions and turned his dialect into the standard German for the, wor- the, for the whole of the German-speaking world. That, is, that, ch- that literally changed the way people spoke. Right? And then we talked about this a little bit, but the priest is a believer because he believed that every single one of them could read the Bible and they could study it for themselves. And it's still true today that you can pick up your Bible and read it and study and figure these things out for yourself and, and priest to the believer and that it doesn't need something that, that we can go over here and we can have these elements of communion. And so this then boosted literacy rates because people said, oh man, there's actually something I want to read now, right? Books are being printed because of the Gutenberg Press. Now the Bible's in my own translation and my preacher gets up there and he preaches it. Well, I want to study it. And now they can. And so they start going to Sunday school, right? And they start being educated on how to read, change the, change the landscape, change the world. And so then fast forward, right? Hope Community Church. Right? We, we, <laughs> we And I mean this, right? I know it sounds silly, but we literally would not be in this room if it wasn't for him. We wouldn't. That there would not have been people who, seeking uh, equality within their religion, with seeking uh, not not have the oppression that wanted to come to America to have freedom of religion and establish their own church here. And that Baptist church and different things, like the first Baptist church that ever exists in Providence, Rhode Island, that spreads into here. Right? A couple hundred years later, boom, here we are. Someone is down here. Margaret, what's her name? Margaret something. Harriet, maybe? Anyways, she was right down there, just down the hill. Right? It's called Lower Town because they could get down to the river and work down there. She starts a Sunday school class. Boom, you have the birth of First Baptist Church. 2017, 500 years later from the day that man nailed that thesis to the door, he changed the world. And we wouldn't be here without him. And so we are going to look at the, the, the reformation to the glory of God. Look at this amazing grace as we celebrate the 500th anniversary next week. Okay, So again, I know this is a really big introduction that I'm like geeking out about, so I apologize. There's a lot more I could say about this, but next week we'll, we'll, I'm going to dig into Scripture, and we're going to look at the five solas. Sola just means first. And so we're going to look at uh, by grace, or sorry, it means alone, by grace alone, and by faith alone, and Scripture alone, uh, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I was worried I was going to get those mixed up. We got those five, right? That's what we're going to look at for the next few weeks, and we're going to study Scripture and look at how is this rediscovery of these uh, truths. And so just in closing, just this gospel application, will you rediscover the gospel, right? As we look at this 500-year anniversary, will you rediscover the gospel with me and with Martin Luther? Will you make it real to your life today, tonight, as we have the elements of the bread and the juice, that you would lift them up and consecrate yourself to him. And maybe, maybe you're hearing the gospel for the first time. Maybe you didn't know that it was by grace and free grace and what God had done. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you're hearing that for the first time. Well, Jesus tells us that today's the day of repentance. 
that today your sins can be forgiven, that, that there can be a holy God of the universe that looks down on you and smiles at you because you've been forgiven. So will you do that with me? We are going to enter into a time of communion. Uh, we've got uh, gluten-free is on this side. Um, if, you, if that's a, a preference, not a preference, I guess that would be a need. Uh, so we have gluten-free over there. And so one of the theologies, again, that I disagree with Luther is how we do communion. And so we, we, what we call is, is uh, open communion. That I, I don't care if you go to this church. I don't care if you go to First Baptist. I don't care if you go to the Korean church here. I don't care if you go to the Catholic church across the street. I don't care. What I care about and what we believe is that if you bow the knee to King Jesus, if you look at him and you say, no, he, he's my Lord. And I want to follow him. That gospel that you talked about, I'm so thankful for that. And so I want to celebrate with my brothers and sisters in this room as the bride of Christ. Then, then we welcome you. Um, and so will you uh, bow with me as we enter into a time of worship and communion and thank God for what he's doing here in Lower Town, St. Paul. Heavenly Father, God, it is so good to be in your house. It is so good to be uh, part of this community and a new community that's going to be born out of Hope Community Church, that you have orchestrated this before the foundation of the world, that you had this, this man this, with this crazy idea to rediscover the gospel and to shed that light in his heart and his mind, and that he had the, the passion and the ability to spread that news again just like it was in the beginning. And so, God, we pray that we would catch that fire, that we would, we would give it the spark a little bit off the rem, remnant embers that, that are burning from that volcano, and that we would get a passion for the truth of the gospel, that it transforms people's lives really, and share that message with them, and that we can see soul after soul and disciple after disciple being made for your honor and your glory, for it's in Christ Jesus' glorious and precious name that we pray. Amen.